Hello and welcome to another episode of Sounds Like Comics, a podcast devoted to all things comic books in movies and TV. I'm Luke. I'm Jay, and welcome to the podcast. Today's topic, Hulk, the film where a man turns into a monster, then fights a tank. It was <laughs> directed by Ang Lee and written by James Seamus, Michael Franz and John Turman, with a story by Seamus. Eric Banner stars as Bruce Banner, Hulk, alongside Jennifer Connelly, Sam Elliott, Josh Lucas, and Nick Nolte. This is your warning. We will be talking spoilers. Yeah, this is, of course, the 2003 Universal film Hulk, not part of the MCU. Am I right in thinking this film is the reason why we don't now have a standalone Hulk movie outside of The Incredible Hulk with Ed Norton because Universal still own, is it the distribution rights? Yeah, um, I believe those rights have now been purchased back by Disney sometime earlier this year, um, which, but up until now, there's, I don't think that they're, they're probably developing one at the moment, but up until Endgame, essentially, that is why we did not have a standalone Hulk film. Yes, because the distribution rights for any Hulk solo film stayed with Universal before uh, Disney put together the MCU to self-distribute. Um, it was part of the original deal with this movie. Um, and around the same time, uh, Namor, the Submariner film as well, which is... Uh, also those ones expired because they never did anything with him but the rights are very odd the reason why we continue to get hulk in movies is because it's only for hulk standalone films so they're allowed to reference him and use him as in appearances of other people's movies but not standalones since the incredible hulk with ed norton um which is why uh why they tried it started from basically thor ragnarok of trying to give Hulk centric stories in other people's movies, but that has nothing to do with this one, but that is uh, why we've had three Hulks in the last 20 years. You're right. I think we should leave the MCU. We've touched on it. Let's talk about the, the Ang Lee movie. Now this came out 2000s, early 2000s. As you said, we're talking X-Men, Daredevil, Spider-Man, this was an interest. Oh, Fantastic Four! An interesting time for Marvel because they looked to be building some traction, not yet connected like we got with the MCU. But I remember before watching the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie, or would it have been? No, that came out earlier. It must have been the sequel. But I distinctly remember going to watch a Raimi Spider-Man movie and seeing a teaser trailer for Hulk. And it was the scene yeah. it was the scene from the movie where Eric Banner as Bruce Banner, that's a little bit confusing. But anyway, yeah. he's in the bathroom and then there's you know, he's wiping away the condensation or the fog on the mirror. And yeah. you see the you see Hulk in there and he smashes through the mirror and grabs him. And that was the first teaser I saw for this movie. And based on that, it's like, wow, this is going to be the best movie. Yeah, and like you said, given the era in which this came out, where this is, I think we had Blade in 98, followed quickly by X-Men and then Spider-Man. And then 
that started the gold rush of the movies at the time, like like you've said, the Ben Affleck Daredevil, the uh, Fantastic Four, and its sequel, Rise of Silver Surfer, and this is movie when Marvel hadn't established a thing of their own, they weren't doing interconnected, and it was just the traditional model of you sold the license for a character to another studio. These were all produced by Abby Arad, um, who had put together the Spider-Man movies with Sony um, from his own Marvel connections from back in the animated Sp- X-Men and animated Spider-Man of the early 90s. Um, but yeah, and so there, I think this is where your problems start. Because I actually did a little bit of research on this one in terms of a script. They had... Uh, three scripts before what would be the final draft for Ang Lee's Hulk. Before Ang Lee came on, there were two initial drafts by two different writers. Actually, there was actually multiple drafts, but two different writers doing multiple drafts before Ang Lee came in. Didn't want any of that, but took elements from the second draft to incorporate into what he wanted for the movie he ended up making, which is this one, um, which was the stuff with uh hulk's abusive father plus the absorbing man and that stuff and he was like that's taking up runtime we'll combine those characters it's now hulk's father spoilers that is the absorbing man not that is not canon that is not part of the comic book stuff it was just something done for this film that was not part done by marvel in order to streamline so he didn't introduce a second or at this point i think it's actually about a fourth element into what would otherwise be an overloaded film um yeah i've, but, I've never yeah but i've never liked that choice though of of having no. his dad be the villain and what you're saying there the incorporating two characters yeah i mean this film is an example so we mentioned directed by ang lee who is essentially, I mean, even now is is more so is an, an art house director. Like, I know he's yeah. recently worked with Will Smith on Gemini Man, but still, you know, he's done Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. He's not your typical Hollywood blockbuster film director. And it's like they've combined the two things. Right on one hand, we want a superhero blockbuster movie, but yeah. we want it to be directed by an art house director. Let's see what happens. And this movie, you know, it wasn't what everybody wanted from from a Hulk film. Like you mentioned, the different writers, directors, development for this film started as far back as 1990. The film was at one point to be directed by Joe Johnston and then Jonathan Hensley. Yeah. Um, Hensley, he directed the first Jumanji Die Hard with a Vengeance, Armageddon. This guy knew what he was doing. Like he had some yeah. good movies to his name. Not a scrub. Uh, and if I think from memory, this was the the second only large uh, American film Ang Lee had been attached to. I think after Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, he had done one Hollywood esque Hollywood film. And this was his second. And it's, I think it was because of interest. It was, it was really weird. Even at the time, people were like, oh, they're going to bring in this, this, uh, this Eastern director, Ang Lee. He's phenomenal. And he's always been known for someone with a very uh, 
distinctive visual style, not across all of his movies being the same style like you would of a Michael Bay or someone of that type, but just being literally visually in, um, inspired and using a new visual style, very different, but very um, not using normal camera shots, not doing normal editing techniques and really pushing how he wants to tell the story using a visual style for the story specifically. Crash on Tiger of Hidden Dragon, of course, famously used uh, the Hong Kong style wire work, but in a more fantasy setting with like a larger, cleaner uh, Western style to the filming techniques. Um, Gemini Man, he did in super high frame rate uh, in order to capture detail that would be required basically 4K for a younger CGI uh, Will Smith. Um, and even all of his other movies, there's always been a very distinctive style. In fact, I think one of the movies he was, was the Ben Affleck movie uh, in the mid to late 2000s where Paycheck. he... Yes, that's, that's that exactly yeah. the one I'm thinking of. Where there are, um, one of the, the main villain in the movie is talking, the actor is talking about a normal person who would film a scene where he walks and swipes his key card and then walks into a facility. He goes, that's not what Ang Lee does. Ang Lee goes to me. He cuts over to Ben Affleck and he cuts back to me and he cuts to the machine. So he's swiped it. And he goes, it's very kinetic and very move and fast moving or for what would otherwise be a plain scene that you wouldn't put that much emphasis on. There's a lot of cuts, a lot of edits for a single scene. And that is the sort of stuff he brought to the Hulk and it probably to mixed results in terms of yeah. I mean, what I, people expected. Yeah, I, I like the, because he wanted it to feel, although again, like it does play very art house. You do get some big effects, but he did want it to still feel like a comic book movie. And that's why we got moving around the screen as if it was panels of a comic book and transitions and fades. And I liked that. I thought it worked. I thought it was very, at the time especially, I appreciated the idea. Um, it, was, it was very different. But I think in terms of mass market appeal, uh, being what we had received up until that point, which was two X-Men movies, two Spider-Man movies, a Fantastic Four movie, a Daredevil film, and they all had started, were treating superheroes more serious and more like you would for a, a not ultra serious but a normal serious action film and he went a skew of that he went left he went everyone's doing that i'm gonna go over this way a little bit and i have to say this time around that editing bugged me Oh, on this right, just okay. specifically on this rewatch because yeah. I because I, I still remembered before I sat down I'm like all right loading up writing writing my notes for this podcast Angley's Hulk I'm like oh he he did that one that was super comic booky in terms of the editing and the panels and even certain cu- certain cuts and transition shots it actually comes up like panels of that you've just seen laid out like a comic book page and it will move from the top corner down to the bottom corner which is the transition between one area of a shot or a scene to the next scene. And I'm like, mm, 
it's very visually busy and not in a way I think serves the story. It is stylized, but it, it, it can become visually, it, it pulls me out every time it pulled me out of the movie. Every time there was one of those overly elaborate transition shots, you know, it's the, it's the opposite of Scott Pilgrim versus the world when those visual styles were of like the graphics and the text and stuff, which helped to feed into visual jokes and other visual cues. And it seemed as part of the identity. Whereas this one, I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm just, I just want to, I just want to normal shots, normal transitions cut from that action back to this, these guys, I, this overly elaborate editing, George Lucas gets skewed, like gets speared for this, for his star wipes and other transitions <laughs> yeah. in star Wars. Like, it yeah it it because it's off-putting uh it when used well it's genius yeah but it was I, um, such a distinctive part of the storytelling it in this is film. it is yeah i mean it is it is the film like it's the it's how the it's how he tells the story is an isolated let's say experiment this one film i like it i think more so now than when it first came out, because you mentioned all the other Marvel movies we've had at the time. This one was very different. But going into it again for this rewatch, I was prepared. So I knew it was going to yeah. happen. So I think I let it wash over me more. Let's talk box office. This film grossed $245 million worldwide, becoming one of the highest grossing films of 2003. It had a budget of 136 million. Right. Hmm. That it still makes it a hit, but that also explains why they didn't go for a direct sequel. Yes, and you're right. Rule of Hollywood is you have to double your budget to to uh, be considered a financial success because, generally speaking, they average out that you double your production budget in terms of advertising. So if you don't make double, it wasn't worth making in the first place. That's how Hollywood uh, econo- economists break down a movie's performance. Um, yeah. But it was still, no, I don't think anyone listening would be like, you spent 130 and got back to 250. Not bad. Yeah. But the thing though, I, I think, a lot of the audience, a lot of the box office is from people wanting to see a Hulk film. And again, yeah. I mentioned that really cool teaser trailer earlier, which essentially ended up being a clip from the movie, but it was bloody fantastic and it had me gripped. So a lot of that box office would be people, I'm going to go watch the new Hulk film. And then watching it, you know, a lot of word of mouth wasn't overly positive. It seemed to test better with critics like they seem to give it more of a positive spin yeah um i'm not surprised because for the listeners whenever i start watching something to prepare for a podcast i write out my my basic thing information that i can google uh name of the film year of release director cast and who they're playing and then from that point on the notes I take that isn't part of that initial research is literally my stream of consciousness for when I'm watching 
what it is, whether it's a TV series, episode by episode, or in terms of a film, literally as I'm watching it. And if I've got something a lot to write, I might take a quick pause, really quickly rush and write out what I was initially thinking and then play. So it's literally a string of stuff. But some of the stuff I put in here, one note early on in the movie, 14 minutes before we are introduced to Bruce Banner in our Hulk film. 14 minutes. Um, that's not bad. But most, almost all of that previous 14, 13 minutes or 14 minutes was basically the credits and essentially young Nick Nolte. And when you're talking about a superhero film, uh, you better have a lot of plot packed in bef- uh, that's essential to the latter, latter half of the movie bef- if you're going to keep your main character off screen for that amount of time. That's not a damnation of all films that refuse to do that. I know a lot of famous examples where the main character doesn't appear until much later in the film. Psycho by uh, Alfred Hitchcock is a famous example of the main character not showing up for a very long time. But in terms of a superhero movie, yeah, it's usually yeah. this like it's usually on. He's usually on screen in your first five minutes. What you've said already, like we've got. Ang Lee as a director, someone that he doesn't play by the rules. He'll he'll do his own thing. Yeah. Before we go any further and get into the actors and the characters, I'll give us a quick rundown on the plot. The film explores the origins of Bruce Banner, who, after a lab accident involving gamma radiation, finds himself able to turn into a huge green-skinned monster whenever he is emotionally provoked or stressed, while he is pursued by the United States military and comes into a conflict with his biological father, who has his own dark agenda for his son. That's very much the almost textbook definition of the Hulks in the comics. Um, as we already touched on the abusive father angle is, it's not something I think they still touch on these days. This is something that was brought up in the eighties during sometime during the John Byrne run, not the Peter David run, which was a lot more favorably looked on, but John Burns was really favorably like, liked by fans of the Hulk and Hulk and comics in general, but, and it was something as a way of introducing anger is, issues into Bruce Banner before the accident that created the Hulk. Um, whereas for this film, they kind of actually reversed that because of the abusive father, or at least the trauma suffered early on. Bruce Banner is very locked up and doesn't show any emotion um and that is a something to know that was a, a choice by the script and the director before we get to eric banner himself eric banner of course being uh, the titular bruce banner hulk which i remember in interviews everyone brought up like eric banner bruce banner seems of course, of course, that's why you hired him. <laughs> Different spelling. Different spelling. Different spelling. Apparently, they hired him because of his performance in Chopper. And they're like, wow, this guy can do, you know, drama. He can do crazy. And they're going to need to have him at times for his performance to get that big that he turns into the Hulk. And I think yeah. 
Eric Banner is really good in this. You know, Jennifer Connelly is Betty Ross. I know we'll get to her, but she's really good in this as well. It's, you know, visually, this is a good-looking film. It's got an interesting style from Ang Lee. It's got a really good cast. But again, I'm going back to what I said before about this maybe not being the Hulk film that maybe people wanted to see. But they do deviate from the Hulk origin. Like I remember watching it that first time. There's, there's no Rick Jones. He's not going out there in harm's way. Bruce Banner's not rushing out, risking his own life to save Rick. They do it all inside the building and there's an experiment. And that's where they're really unlocking what is already there in Bruce Banner because of the years that his dad experimented on himself and then passed it on to Bruce. So we've got this whole new thing going on. Yeah, and I think that's that's a big, that is a massive departure from the comics. Um, I mean, the modernization, they, I mean, the modernization they even carry through to Edward Norton's Incredible Hulk for the MCU of it not being a literal nuclear explosion. Like a but even, even with that, though, Norton, we didn't get a, a true classic Hulk origin because he was already the Incredible Hulk and on the run in that movie. And I'm assuming they made that choice because of this movie. It hadn't been long enough for them to do another origin, but then the origin yeah, in this they, is just too different. Yeah, and um, the fact that it's not such a... Of a violent, sudden change, and because uh, he does do something heroic, it is his lab tech who, for some reason, they didn't call uh, Rick Jones, who was working on their their machine that ex- uses gamma radiation, and there's this electric short, and he runs in there and protects him because he won't move out the way in, during in the lab. Bruce steps in the way and absorbs the full hit of the radiation. Like I said, unlock, but it unlocks something already there. And all of the things you see in that big 14-minute prologue, which is essentially all of the credits, the very long credits, uh, and the explanation of the experiments that David Banner, Hulk's father, was performing for the military essentially on himself, though, all feed in to the attributes of the Hulk. Uh, his... Uh, durability when he becomes the Hulk is hardening of, like the why bullets don't penetrate is because of a starfish that reacts <laughs> yeah. that way and yeah. it's it's tissue hardens um, also the regeneration uh, that he takes from I think that it's, the, it's not a starfish he just implants it into a starfish but he takes that from another animal um, and all of these other traits um, uh, even the green comes through from something that he works at when it is, it goes by that luminescent green. And that's why the Hulk skin turns green. Like they try to come up with scientific reasoning of all these traits that the Hulk has and why they were there to begin with all of that stuff, which I understand, but it does start to, it does drag out a long time in terms of an origin. And it's why I think for the Edward Norton Hulk film, all that is done in shots during the credits before the movie even starts. Like they did with Sam Raimi's Spider-Man two of recap 
recapping, recapping the the story from the first Spider-Man movie in Alex Ross art for Spider-Man Two, which was like, perfect. Yeah. You know, most superheroes, if you start poking holes, the whole thing falls to pieces. So when yeah. you've got something like this, where they're going, oh, we're going to try and apply real life science or we're going to tell you how this came to be and how it could come to be it just it often doesn't work yeah because as you start to give it to you as you start to give it too much information you now provide the audience uh, regardless of what their scientific knowledge is things to go oh wait does that work you start to add throw the question out there but when it's just something generic like super soldier serum mystical energy force or something else it's something we're so completely unfamiliar with we don't even give it a second thought we're like oh yeah 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 do dad yeah cool whatever i don't understand it along with it cosmic rays cool yeah (laughs) but the more you the more you yeah the more you break it down yeah you're right the more the brain can't help but go hold up wait a minute what was that does that check out and yeah you don't even realize you're doing it, but your brain is doing it. Um, but that, that, that doesn't take away from the performances of the actors, really. That's a, that's a scripting choice yes. yeah. and a directorial choice. But yeah, Eric Banner, I, I really like Eric Banner. I, I think he's, he was phenomenal in Chopper. I've loved him in um, a lot of the stuff he's done. Like Troy really, really set me up for him. Uh, in terms of doing something and changing his voice, Black Hawk down, a lot of other stuff he's done. For this, I remember seeing at the time and really being impressed with everyone in the movie. Um, but for this time around, and again, it's not, I don't think it's his fault, but I found a lot of the characters falling flat. And it all comes down for me for that choice of him not showing emotion, he not him being shut down emotionally because of a trauma he doesn't recognize, he doesn't remember, a childhood yeah. trauma. But um, it really, so, it limits his performance. And I, and I guess it can be looked on, on one hand, yet yeah, it's limited him in certain aspects, so therefore he can use other ways to get his performance out. So I do know it was the, the inner turmoil, it was the drama of the screenplay that attracted Banner to this film. It wasn't yeah. the sci-fi elements, the you know, the Incredible Hulk, the big green monster. It was the it was the human drama. Yeah, and that brings me back to some of the research I did, which Eric Banner said that well, those were the things that drew him to it. But this was the most serious movie, and this was an interview much later on. This was the most serious set he had ever worked on in his in his career. Um, because he kn- knew it was a comic book movie, but expected that to also kind of work in his favor in terms of being able to do much more complex character stuff because he could do the the like intense or, or the dramatic stuff as Bruce Banner and then maybe get to loosen up and have a little bit of fun as the Hulk. Problem being, Ang Lee was like, this is like, great tragedy this is serious this is ultra serious and like basically having a sterile set where no one was like having fun no one was really enjoying it because it was so intense like and uh stifling on set 
and all that fun stuff that he thought he was going to be able to do was done at ILM and he did not do the acting for the Hulk. No, somebody he else. Got no release. <laughs> so he got no release. And that, um, and that was like, it's not what he expected on set. So, well, do you know I who did it? Do you know, do you know who was in the mocap as Hulk? No. Ang Lee. <laughs> he did it. So, yeah, so, so Eric Banner is doing all the tortured parts. And then when, you know, Hulk is jumping around, ripping dogs apart, that was Ang Lee. He was doing all the movements. And I've heard that he's in other movies he, when there's been like a visual effect or a character that he's done it there as well. But yeah, no, he was doing the movements. I mean, the Hulk, how he looks in this film, even watching it now, I, I quite like. I do quite like the fact that they've got him green. They give him purple pants each day. Yeah. So visually, you know, he is looking like Hulk, but something that always, I always got stuck on the facts that he grew too big for me. He grew yeah. way too big. And I get what they're doing. They're showing you that the angrier he gets, and this is the same in the comics, the angrier he gets, the more powerful he gets. But I guess visually, they wanted to show his size to increase. So the first time when he appears, he's nine feet tall. The second time, he's 12 feet tall. And the third time, he's 15 feet tall. He's huge. Yeah. He is, yeah. he is absolutely massive. Yeah. He's the size of a house, a literal house. He is literally the size of a cabin that Betty Ross, Jennifer Connelly is staying into like, because of the things that are happening. He stood next to the house and he looms over it. It is, he's enormous. It's too big. He's enormous. It's too big. In my um, uh, in the intro, I made reference to the fact that it fights a tank. For me, that's the movie. I just want that. <laughs> just give me yeah. twenty minutes, however long the sequence was, where he's he's leaping and he's fighting tanks in the desert. Loved all of that stuff. That was yeah, some that good was fun. Hulk action. Yeah, um, it's visually interesting. They have a good sense of. Uh, story and movement and stuff and it being something dangerous you're like oh yeah yeah and everyone understands a tank is stupid heavy like ridiculously heavy and the thing the big guns on it are very powerful so when he shrugs it he's shrugging off these shells and he's punching a tank and he's throwing it a ridiculous distance you're like whoa he's so strong um but the one thing that it took them all the way up until Mark Ruffalo to actually implement, and this always was a problem with me, the Hulk face looks nothing like Eric Banner. And it was something that Edward Norton had a problem with as well. The face on that Hulk looked nothing like the actor playing Bruce Banner. It's not until Mark Ruffalo that they actually yes. modeled yeah. the face on the actor. <laughs> like, it seems like a no-brainer, but it's something they I know, always, always yeah, we're talking. Do. 2003 though like it's a you know it's there are a lot the technology has come along so far like now so they can do that they can put ruffalo's face on there but back then though 
it had to pretty much just have like a generic base. But it, it did, it did work. And and the the strength of the Hulk. I'll say this: right? we've got some good Hulk moments out of the MCU. Yeah, the the power set of Ang Lee's Hulk. I reckon he could take Ruffalo's Hulk. I didn't think this is where we were going to go when talking about the movie, but I think Ang Lee's Hulk is a lot more powerful than the one that we get into the MCU because of the MCU Hulk, they are pitting him against multiple villains, sometimes heroes, and he needs to be able to be defeated at certain times because you can't have an all-powerful guy going up against other all-powerful creatures or people because there needs to be some give and take. This movie, they had him be the most powerful there is. Like He's getting bigger and more powerful. He's fighting dogs. And when he gets to the point where we get to the third act, he's fighting his dad. As you've said, a combination of his dad and the, what was it, the absorbing man. Yep. Even there, he's like, you want it, you want the power, here it is. And it's too much for him. Like in this movie, yeah. Ang Lee's Hulk is literally the most powerful there is. Yeah, um, and I agree with that because, like you said, with the Avengers movies, you, what he fights, it's hard for us to get a real world like idea of well, how, how hard is that thing? How heavy is that thing? How big is that thing? How much force is that thing producing? Like no one knows, like no normal person knows the caliber and how much damage the, a shell of a tank does and they don't know exactly the weight but they just they know uh, they'll literally pancake me that's enough that's that's how heavy it is it's it's steel no problem how strong is a chitauri warrior from the avengers i don't know hulk smashes like a million of those dudes like i don't know how big and heavy and tough is the big wormy thing that he, they fly in the Avengers. I don't know. It's an alien thing. I don't know. I don't even know how big it is. I can't tell. The, the, the scale sense is off. I have no reference for something that big or that alien. Um, and yeah, anyone else he fights. The only one we seem fight, the Thanos. We don't have a, a real easy meter of Thanos' strength or Thor's. No. You're right. We don't actually... Un, I think Iron Man is what the other thing he fights in the movie. You don't have a real strong idea of the weight. If all you saw, if you saw him pick up a train in the, in one of the MCU films, you'd have somewhat of an idea of strength, but you never get it. But even then, and that's, like, that's makes this yeah. translation way easier to Definitely, understand. Because in those films, and I did say we weren't going to continue with Marvel <laughs> Studios, but in those films, he, it needs to be able to be taken down. Like there needs to be able yep. to be a, like situations or opponents that can stop him. Whereas what Ang Lee is doing in this solo movie, he doesn't need that. You don't need him to, to be stopped really. It could just keep yep. growing and growing and getting more powerful. And that's why I'm saying that he, he is essentially on screen more powerful than what we get in the MCU. Yeah. The other interesting thing they do with the Ang Lee Hulk is when he ref he's reverting back to Bruce Banner, uh, the water loss 
that pulls off him uh, as he shrinks down. Like there's a direct correlation to as his size reduces, that amount of, I guess, mass falls off as sweat or water. Um, very interesting, very obvious visual cue that makes it uh, like instantly recognizable to a viewer. And I, I did think that was fascinating, but um, doesn't quite it's, it's it doesn't quite mesh with the other th- problems I had earlier on. Um, but I did think that was really interesting. Uh, but moving on to the other actors, uh, the uh, next main actor, Betty Ross, Jennifer Connelly, uh, of Labyrinth fame. <laughs> yeah, and. Yeah, like Banner, she's really, she's really good in this. I like her as as Betty Ross. You know, she plays the part very well. Not only does she give a good performance as Betty Ross, she does look the part as well. She does, yeah. Um, and the smart thing they do with her character is she's attracted to Bruce Banner. Um, they're both scientists, but she's attracted to. Bruce because he's emotionally distant because her father's emotionally distant because he's a general and never around and you're like all right that tracks like I I have a very 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 basic understanding of human psychology and that is a known fact that people tend to it's very common for people to react that way as an adult in terms of childhood good job and yeah, and she's she's faultless um, with her performance. Again, there was some scripting issues that gave me trouble. Like any movie like this, you're gonna have clunky dialogue here and there. Um, that you know, no actor's ability is gonna be able to move past. But yeah, she was really good. Um, someone who was really great. Um, and the character was well service. I found was Sam Elliott as General Ross. Yes, Either. this is a man who <laughs> knows how to I grow mean, a mustache. <laughs> yes, he does. I mean, he for me is perfect casting, just like J.K. Simmons as Jameson in Spider Man. They nailed it with Sam Elliott as General Thaddeus Ross, Thunderbolt yeah. Ross. He yeah. looks and sounds just like him. Yeah, and um, there's the right level of when he's talking talking to his daughter, Betty, there's the maternal side, there's the understanding side, there's the life experience and the, there's the wariness there is he's frustrated by not being able to communicate in the way he wants with his daughter. But then when he's the general, it's like you take orders from this person. You do not have question. You yeah. don't want to answer back. You believe like his determination and his grit and it works. It it just instantly, you, there's never a fault. There's never a wrinkle on him at all. Um, perfect, perfect casting. Like you said, like JK oh, he's, Simmons. He's, he's amazing. Like he just, everything about him in this, you know, I just recently tonight rewatched Roadhouse. Yeah. And he's great in that as Wade. <laughs> He's so yeah. good in that he doesn't quite have the tash in that movie, but he's yeah. just yeah, he's cool. Like and he he is brilliant in this. Yeah, I did read that initially because in the military you wouldn't have a tash, especially 
um, as a general, uh, but he had to be talked into it. And then he's like, all right, okay, okay. And then he kept the tash because, I mean, he's a guy that is known for having a tash, but also the character in the comics does have a tash. So I'm glad they were able to talk him into it because, yeah, he looked like he just leapt off the page onto the screen. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, triumph there. Um, the other villain, we actually get two. I think we'll move to Nick Nolte first because he is essentially a big bang at the end and he's pure Nick Nolte in this. <laughs> yes. He is intense <laughs> and growly yeah. and he always puts you on edge because when he's talking softly and like seemingly intellectually and with uh, intent, you're like, uh, at some point, is he going to turn? He's going to snap, and he's going to be all like d- disgusting. And he looks like he smells, and I don't want him all up in my business. And he does do that as well. And you're like, ah, oh, there it is. Ah, oh, this is everything I feared. He's he's great. He's great. Um, it's an interesting role. Um, like the abusive father, you can definitely buy with his aggression and his mood swings, which uh, works really well. Uh, you also believe that this is someone who's been in prison. <laughs> like he says, he's been in a hole for what, 30 years. I think it's one of the lines out of the movie. And you look at that hair and that disheveled and the, the lines in his face. And you're like, yep, that guy's done some prison time. <laughs> Can you remember that famous police mugshot of Nick Nolte? And he was in all the yes. tabloids years ago. Well, that yep. was him prepping for this movie. I mean, not the, you know, whatever they <laughs> took his mugshot for, but him growing out of his hair, so in that mugshot, he looks really disheveled and mad, really. Yeah. It was him growing his hair out for this film. That's yeah. where <laughs> that famous mugshot came from. Now, listen, awesome. Nick Nolte is bloody... He's Nick Nolte. He's fantastic. He's great. On occasion, yeah, you might need subtitles, because especially yeah. when he's getting really growly. This is where I struggled, though especially that first time I watched this movie, I didn't like that this was our villain. That it was his no. and experimenting. So although even today, like watching it for the podcast, like we, Nick Nolte's great in this film. He's really good, but he's giving a really good performance. But it's something that I don't want. And I don't like. Yeah. It's nothing to do with him. It's just, it's the script. It's it's the character. And this is a problem I had recurring throughout this whole film. Uh, regardless of who was delivering a line or the scene and who was in it, I kept, I kept, I was in the movie and then something would happen script wise and it, I'd bump into it again. Like, Oh God, why, why they put that in there? Why they use that decision? And it, and it kept happening. And I, I agree with you completely. The, the father angle for this villain doesn't work for me because uh, of my own prior knowledge of Hulk and the, conv- and the conveniences. I think you could have completely just left this uh, as it is with General Ross being a thought, an, an antagonistic element, not so much the main villain, but an element to, to the Hulk and your big bad being Josh Lucas's Talbot, who should have been the actual villain. I think he doesn't need to have 
superpowers, but I think he he should have been your a villain off the bat. I understand what the 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 behind the scenes of why you cast the father slash absorbing man. People want to see the Hulk punch some big scary monster thing. I get it. I understand it's it's a very big part of the comics, but for your initial film, the antagonistic military industrial complex and the lab that Josh that Talbot represents wanting to like like carve up the Hulk to break him down to weaponize should be enough of a villain. Uh, the visual language, like the best Hulk fight in the movie, the, as we've both talked about, is him fighting tanks, which you know, a military working for a contractor like the the laboratory might plausibly be able to like reckon with, but and how do you take him down? It wasn't the military might or anything like that. It was um, you know, he's unbeatable on a direct strength to strength basis. It would have been what basically what was the end of your second act? Betty Ross being able to calm him down and touch the human part of the Hulk, not the weapon part of the person. Um, that was all the emotional resonance for the movie for me was in the middle there. And then that it, the end part starts to happen with absorbing man, Nick Nolte and that stuff. And that yeah. kind of like, I was done at the mid- second act. I'm like, great, finished there. Good job. Movie done. Good job, guys. And then the third act happens. Yeah. Lots more film. <laughs> There's like another 30, 40, maybe 45 minutes left. Yeah. yeah. Josh Lucas as Talbot, I like him, but he's a dick and he's supposed to be. Like, you know, he, he yeah. plays it really well. We get that great scene in the house where he's provoking Banner. He doesn't quite know what's going to happen and he hulks out and it's, and it's good. And then you get the yeah. sequence where Hulk is then going to go and save Betty, but then we get the bloody Gamma Dogs. Like, wow. Yeah. I mean, at one point, there's a scene where the Hulk's fighting the dogs, and it's just for me, it's not impressive enough. We, again, the tanks, great. But before the tanks, he's in the dark, and that's something visually they stuck to. Early on, they were withholding showing Hulk in daylight until much later. So even the scene with the dogs. It's nighttime. So you're kind of squinting, trying to make out, you know, what's actually happening. But there's that moment where one of the dogs is biting Hulk's bicep and he flexes, he rips the dog's jaw. I mean, essentially, okay, so we're sat here watching a comic book film and our hero is just fighting dogs. And you're like, oh, there's not really a lot to enjoy here. Because I get it, the gamma radiated dogs, but you still don't like watching cruelty to animals and especially when it's the hero doing it so that yeah. whole thing with the dogs didn't like it then didn't didn't like it didn't like it now nah um and i was weird because i remember at the time in 2003 liking it because of the interesting part of that you know they're establishing he as he gets angry he gets bigger and that's how the dog's jaw breaks because it has him it has, like you said, it has his bicep. I actually think it's his his, his uh, um, point, trap yeah. he did it's on, on his back, yeah. on his necks. And it's because he gets angrier and swells to get stronger that it's his muscle size has suddenly increased 
uh, past the dog's jaw point. And then, but, and working in the dark should work quite well. Uh, it should help. It should harken back to the original horror-esque roots of uh, the character with a bit of a Frankenstein's monster element to it. Uh, and for on the visual effects side, heavy uh, CGI is works better in the dark because you, you can hide the edges and you can hide the layering and that sort of stuff. But because it's so dark yeah, no, and it's I, visually confusing, I it's hard to track it, yeah. the action. Yeah, I didn't get uh, it. You're all. doing it. Yeah, you're getting it all in uh, basically headlights of Betty's car, which makes it also visually confusing. And there's four things, three dogs and one Hulk. Uh, at one point, moment, they're up in a big tree that doesn't make sense and breaks immersion. And when he kills them, he doesn't just kill them. They pop, like, literally, like, pop into a, into green gas. And I'm like, what happened? Where did that come from? Why do they pop? Why do they pop that way? <laughs> it, the whole Science. scene comes across, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The whole, yeah. The whole scene comes across, like, what? Um. Yeah, it's and you know the, the, this movie keeps bumping into these little parts. You've got everyone doing well. Even the person who plays uh, young Nick Dalty, uh, Dave, young David Banner, poor Kersey, who you get those first fourteen minutes of the opening movie, and any flashbacks to uh, the research center uh, stuff, and the when Bruce starts to remember the incident and. His that he had a mother and a father and what they look like and where they live, and poor Kersey comes up and all that, and he does a he does a really good job. He doesn't have a lot of dialogue. It's all it's a a lot of just serious acting and reacting the sciencey stuff, but there's some emotion to it. He does fine, but again, that's it's all on a based off a script and an idea that neither of us like. The abusive father scientist that is responsible for it all. It all takes, I guess, the blame and impetus off Bruce. Might might be why I have such a problem with it. Yeah, because just, it's always he created yeah. himself. It's and just he, that thing where you've got the origin and it's an experiment and it's just some random thing that happens. But when you when you find out that oh no, it was destiny. It's like when they did the Amazing Spider-Man with Andrew Garfield. It's like oh now you're going to get the untold story. Like something to do with, it was always supposed to happen to him. His parents were secret agents and they're adding all these unnecessary layers. But whenever you get a superhero and they're saying that, oh, it was destiny or it's legacy or something, it just, it's not as special. Bruce Banner just being a guy in a situation that could have happened to anybody but he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, yeah, it it is a it is a really good point. Like, well, what the reason why they work for a long time is because the seamless every manner of it all. Um, you know, the that random act comes, and a lot of it comes from self powerment as well. Like he built, he designed and built the bomb that went off that he got caught in the explosion of um, like the flash. It was his lab and his chemicals that got doused on him and got, he got hit by lightning that made him the, the flash, you know, Spider-Man. Uh, it, although that was an accident, he went there because it was somewhere he wanted to go. He wanted to see that science um, ex, uh, um, thing. Um, Steve Rogers 
wanted to become a Captain America and serve his country because otherwise he couldn't. When you take the the motivations away from the main character, you know, Bruce would have been fine if he'd stayed there, but he chose to move out of the bunker to save Rick Jones and got himself into danger. You take something away from the character by going, really oh, do. well, actually, yeah. there's a bunch of stuff in the background that they didn't have any control and it was always going to be them. Like, uh, okay, whatever. It's sacrificing tragedy. Like he's doing something heroic, something selfless, and he's the one that gets punished and has to live with the consequences. Shit! And there was another swear word. Then that's not this movie. Like it's it's taken it's taken that away. And let's talk about something positive: the soundtrack, the score, Danny Elfman. Yeah. Oh man, this. They, this score pops up a lot during this film. It is the main theme, and uh, as, and it's riddled throughout this movie. It's the opening credits. It's anything emotional. It's every Hulk theme scene. It's but pretty. I yeah, love it. Yeah, I love it too. But it's pretty common, like especially around this time. You know, going back to John Williams' Superman, like to repurpose or reuse the established theme, you know, throughout the movie. And yeah. it's very, for me, like you hear Danny Elfman and straight away, they kind of, after a while can blend into each other. Like, yeah. you know, whether it's Batman, Beetlejuice, you know, they can all start to, to merge. Whereas this one is quite different. And he did it not too long after he did the Spider-Man theme for Sam Raimi. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it works really well. There's a, there's a whole, there's it's a very layered sound because it it does serve well in a lot of different emotional contexts. But uh, there's a there's a there's a emotion uh, of a falling field, the way it plays out. I, uh, and it works. Yeah, I just, it just works. I don't. I, I can't even really uh, texturize why it works or how it works. I just. I hear it and I'm like, oh, that's genius. That's just really yeah. well done. And uh, instantly recognizable for the film it is as well. It as really said, is. It's original. Yeah, but I think because, you know, Ang Lee was doing something different with his approach, we're getting a different approach from Danny Elfman as well. So I really do, I really like the score. It, it plays really well. And, you know, I have it on CD. I've had it for many years. <laughs> I don't, yeah. and I used to own the movie on DVD. I don't anymore. So this one, I think you watched on Netflix as well. This is about I watched it. Yeah. But I don't own the movie, but I own, I own the soundtrack. So what does that tell you? <laughs> we, yeah. we did not get a sequel for this film, but during filming, producer Avi Arad targeted a May 2005 theatrical release date for a sequel to the film. Upon the film's release, screenwriter James Seamus started to play the sequel, featuring Hulk's Grey Hulk personality and considered the use of the leader and the abomination as villains. So not just his dad again. Marvel asked for Abomination's inclusion as he would be an actual threat to Hulk, unlike General Ross. So they wanted him to have a big, powerful villain and just going to Using villains from the comics is the way to go. And again, we, we can just 
we could talk more about how we don't like the choice of having his dad to be the big bad. And especially if we're going to be a, a superpowered bad guy. Yeah. But we could have got something maybe more comic accurate if they were ever to have had a sequel. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, uh, Abomination is the villain that Marvel chose with Edward Norton in their, fir- in their film, uh, Incredible Hulk, played by Tim Roth, who, which I understand. I absolutely understand that for a sequel. Uh, if you had stuck with just the military for your first film, step up to Abomination in your second film, and I think this was also the Marvel idea because they set up the leader in that film as well, and then the leader comes back with his gamma corp or uh, or group because he he's obsessed with creating hulked out gamma radiated versions, but he was throwing multiple of them. So where conventional weaponry is not enough in your first film, your second film he goes up against a direct equal essentially, one power set equal to his own, but he comes out ultimately on top. And then your natural escalation for that is someone intelligent and a strategist in the leader who has multiple uh, uh, opponents he can fight and that puts the odds against Hulk because he's got numbers. Even if it's just two or three gamma irradiated things that the Hulk has to fight at once, but them being controlled by a, a, a strategist like the leader would have worked. We never got there though. Because no, of the um, like, le- the less the the underperformance and views of the the studio for this film. Yeah, but there was definitely potential there. Okay, so this film then, Jay, if you're going to rate it out of five, unfortunately, I'm going to have to rate it as a two. I had, um, I really, I knew I was going to have, I was going to suffer with this. I thought it would come through that kind of middle of the road three in terms of just little bits here dating there here and there um but in terms of the prop those initial problems with the, the plot and script and the um some of the choices they made the fact that for large parts for me um bruce banner came across too emotionally flat to give him some emotional oomph it all happened with the hulk that Eric Banner didn't get to act out, so it didn't feel as cohesive a role as what we eventually get with Mark Ruffalo, who does both parts. Um, even in certain scenes, and this is again, this is not Jennifer Connelly. She's supposed to be terrified, but they they choose to make the choice for her of underselling everything because it's so serious. She doesn't cry or scream, or she's not visually shivering. She kind of goes still and doesn't react emotionally. Like one of the big things. Talking about this is when he when he first has the accident hasn't changed yet and he's like Nick Nolte's told Eric Banner that he's his father and when he relates this to Jennifer Connelly who was like ten minutes ago pushing for him why don't you want to find out who your birth parents were and he's like because they're dead they died when I was a child she doesn't react at all not her that was the script that was the direction that they chose all these problems culminating in and they just, it just grew from that initial thing of, I don't like the father also being absorbing man as the villain. And it just, everything that I didn't like or didn't land for me 
gathered momentum into this ever increasing snowball until that end. Like I said, if they had ended in the, at the end of the second act in San Francisco, I'd be like, you know what? No, you pulled that back around. It would have pulled my rating much further up because for me, that was the, the emotional climax and it really worked as a story arc there. But that third act comes along and flattens me out once more and knocks down my rating. So unfortunately, despite the quality of the performances, and the score and other things I kind of coming at too. It's a problem when you don't like the villain because yeah. you need a good villain for your good guy to go up against, your hero to go up against. The final scene, is it South America where we leave? Where we've got Bruce Banner, he's got a beard, he's in the jungle, and then there's the bad guys and yeah. subtitled, he's like, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And then the camera yep. pulls out and then you see the green to the tops of the trees and you hear yep. the roar. Yep. I love that. So like yeah. the movie ends, Brilliant. ends on a high note. I really liked that. Yeah, now this, it, it was interesting doing the rewatch. I'm really glad that we, we covered it for the podcast, but yeah, like it's, it's, it's not great, is it? It's it's really not. It's very it's very problematic. I mean, the things that I do like again, I've mentioned a couple of times now. Uh, Hulk fighting the tanks, the green skin, the purple trunks, Danny Elfman's score. So there's things that I do like about this film, but ultimately I can't come any higher than two point five out of five. And I just don't know if I'm going to watch this movie ever again, to be honest. Maybe, I don't know, at some point, but I'm not going to actively look to watch it again. I'm done. It's fine. It happened. We'll get to see Hulk again in future MCU movies. But yeah, it's just interesting to go back because this came out at a time where Marvel were just starting, like I said earlier, 98 with Blade, then X-Men, and we were getting quite a few. It's interesting. It's, I'm glad that it exists, uh, but I've watched it enough at this point. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a step along the evolution to what eventually became uh, the left. These are the mis- missteps that Marvel learned for when they did it themselves of like, let's not do that. That's right. Well, that's it for our episode all about Hulk. If you want to contact us about this episode or request a topic for an upcoming show, you can find us on Facebook as Sounds Like Comics Podcast. As always, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time. 